As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be in Psalm 37 verses, uh, we'll be at the end of the Psalm today, verses 27 through 40, verses 27 through 40. Let's hear from the entirety of the Psalm though, just to hear the rest of it. Of David, fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. The arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the day of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not Put to shame in evil times, in the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young, and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil, and do good, so shall you dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints, they are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on what on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away and behold, he was no more until I sought him. He could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that you would guide us into your truth. 
We ask that you would take your word and plant it deeply within us. Mold us and form us according to your will. Strengthen and increase our faith. Help us to rest in Christ. Help us, Father, to, as we seek to grow, to continue looking to you and taking refuge in you. We pray you'd rest upon this preacher. Chain him to the text that is your word, that he might freely declare truth. And do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we mentioned when we started this psalm, one of the great themes of the Psalter is lament. Several of the previous psalms were laments. What is a lament? Well, it's a, it's a cry of grief. It's a cry of anguish. It's a cry of despair. In fact, there's a, a whole book that's dedicated to lament called the Book of Lamentations in which Jeremiah is grieving the sacking of Jerusalem and the people of God going into exile. And so, and, and while we've seen a number of different laments, each, in each of those laments, there's hope and light of the suffering and persecution and devisings of wicked people. We've also seen how these point us to Jesus Christ. And in this psalm, there's a lot of back and forth like we would read in the book of Proverbs or other wisdom literature with the collections of saints. There's a constant theme running throughout. And the idea in this psalm is this. Be still before the Lord. Be still before the Lord, even though it appears most, if not all, is lost. Even though it appears that the wicked seem to have won the day. Even though it appears that the evil man is gaining for himself and the righteous appear to be losing. He says, fret not, but rather be still before the Lord. Be still before the Lord. Remember what fretting is. Fretting is another word for worrying, being anxious. Or another way of speaking it is spending our time clutching our pearls. Or spending our time um, rubbing our hands because we're so worried about things. But fret not that, fret not that situation. Because while uh, appearances suggest that the wicked are on top, the godly, in reality, need to wait Because as we've seen, the success of the wicked is but fleeting, and that'll be spoken of again. And we've seen the centrality of the land to Israel, and we'll see how that also points us beyond to what the land pointed. We've seen uh, a number of different things, speaking about being still before the Lord, giving an exhortation to refrain from anger, and seeing several different contrasts between the righteous and the wicked. We've seen the curse of wickedness. We've seen the blessing of righteous, that the blessing of righteousness is greater than all the wealth that the wicked might, might have even combined together. And, more, and that we've seen more contrast. And we also see that righteousness endures. And now today, when we turn to <clears throat> verse 27, to the end of the chapter, we see what is this, we see, we begin with an open with an exhortation to turn from evil and to do good. It's broken up into uh, several different sections. Uh, in verses twenty-seven through twenty-nine, uh, we see this overall idea of turning from evil and doing good, as well as the why behind it. In verses thirty through thirty-three, we see more contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And then in verse 
and verse 34, we have kind of a central axis point, uh, and we see the hope of the righteous. And then in verses 35 through 38, the eternal fleetingness of ungodly gain. And then in verses 39 and 40, how God saves those who take refuge in him. So turn our attention to verse 27. He gives us this overall idea of exhortation of turn from evil and do good. Remember, in the context of this psalm, he's exhorting them to fret not because even though the evil seems to be winning the day, even though the wicked are seeming to do, uh, are seeming to uh to be victorious over that which is good and right and just. And that one of the temptations for God's people in that type of a circumstance would be to turn to pragmatism and to say, well, our goal is to win. And if our goal is to win, we need to do anything to win. And if righteousness and if doing doing good according to the Lord isn't working, then maybe we need to try a different path. And according to human logic, that would make sense, right? But not according to God's word. In fact, that's the height of folly to do so. In fact, there have been a number of interviews with Christians uh, in churches who, when looking at certain passages of the scripture, saying, I know that's in the word of God, but that doesn't work anymore. So we shouldn't do that. Because of the chaos of the world, they're saying we need to do to them what they're doing to us. And here he says, don't do that. He says, turn from evil and do good. Turn from evil and do good. And he gives a number of different reasons why. But in the face of evil, he tells his people, don't do the evil. Rather, continue doing good, even though. And even to those who are doing evil. Even evil to us. Remembering the MO of self-preservation has been dealt with, dealt with for us in Christ Jesus. And he gives us the reason why in verse 27. We're going to see in a moment about how this, uh, <clears throat> how this is going to point us to Christ as well. But he gives us the reason for turning uh, uh, for turning from evil. He says, so shall you dwell forever. That is, that is the life of the of the one in Christ, the one who's in uh, faithful covenant with God shall indeed dwell in that state of good forever. As one uh, singer in the 1970s and 80s uh, challenged some people. He said, if you think worshiping God is boring, and you, and you think it's dull. He said, you're going to be awfully bored in heaven. And he also sees why. Because the Lord loves justice. And he will not forsake his saints. We see these reasons. Because they're preserved forever. And then we see the contrast with the wicked. Is that they shall be cut off. And so thus, first of all, the Lord loves justice. Here we had gets into the motivations for seeking to do good. And oftentimes we want to approach it from the standpoint of what do I get out of it? What do I get out of doing good? Very, we call that transactionalism. 
that we view anything we do as some sort of transaction. I've done this, so I expect to get this. In fact, we often treat relationships that way, that we view relationships as fundamentally transactional, which is a sinful way of looking at relationships. But here he gives the first thing. Why? Because the Lord loves what is good. Because the Lord loves what is good. So we should love that which which the Lord loves. And he won't forsake his holy ones. That is, because he's with his people. For he has sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us. He entered into covenant with us simply because he loves us. And he's with us. And that he preserves us. And also to see doing evil is to turn away from that which is good and to identify with those who are being cut off. To identify with those who are being cut off. And because the promise is ours. The promise is ours. As it says, uh, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The promise belongs to the righteous. Now, Looking at this in the context of Israel in their covenant, they were, as we've seen many times in different messages in the book of Hebrews and in the Psalms, in Israel's context, they were in a unique covenant for themselves that guided and dictated their life in the land. And righteousness, indeed, was the requirement for life in the land. It was a righteousness which, which they were required to carry out. To, to, for life in the land. It was a covenant of do this and live. And over and over again, they failed that and ultimately they left the land and it was failed. And it was a, it was a testimony or a, a testimony that we cannot do that which God requires to merit his favor, to inherit his promise. But we consider this when we look at our Lord Jesus Christ Our Lord Jesus Christ says, while the wicked are cut off, our Lord Jesus Christ was cut off on our behalf so that his people can dwell in God's eternal city. That because he lived and because he died for his people, because he went outside the gate, because he was cut off, he, the righteous one, was cut off on behalf of us sinners who deserve to be cut off. Furthermore, because of that, because of his because of righteousness his people are preserved forever because of righteousness but not righteousness that we have done but what Christ has done for us on our behalf we are preserved forever no amount of righteousness that we could produce or perform will grant us any sort of eternal favor with god for us to say that Christ's righteousness is sufficient for us to get right standing with God, but then we have to have a certain number of works at the end for God to judge and then say, okay, you've done well enough, is actually to impugn the holiness of God. Whereas to say that he is willing to accept works which are as filthy as filthy rags to count as merit merit before him. And we have that knowledge that we are preserved forever in Christ. So we have every reason to do good and to turn from evil and to not return the favor or to not imitate those who have gained greatly. 
We must remember the devil is very masterful in his deceptions of of people, and he can take that which which sounds like it has which has a a grain of truth or the truth sounding, but take us off course. We also recognize that through Christ Jesus we have an inheritance of the heavenly Jerusalem, an eternal city. As we see, as we'll see in Hebrews chapter, as we saw in Hebrews eleven, the city whose foundations are built by God that Abraham was seeking when he went so many years ago to seek out the land that God had promised him, and he and his posterity were searching not for a piece of land in the Levant, but were searching for a city whose foundations were built by God, an eternal heavenly city. And in Hebrews 13, we will see that we have a city that is no lasting city here, but the city which is ours is the heavenly Jerusalem that is ours in in him. So we have the Canaan above, to which the the land promise in Israel's history points. All of the blessings of that of the new covenant in Christ Jesus are ours in and through and only in and through Jesus our Christ. And they shall never, ever, ever, ever be taken away and are of more infinite value than all the riches, than all the power, and then all the influence that this world can afford. It's that old song. Well, depending on how you understand old to be, 20, early 20th century is not really old. But I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. And so we have all of that because Christ, Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements that we see here. He never had, he never was evil and didn't have to repent, but he faced temptation and said no to the temptation and always did good on our behalf. And so for us now in Christ Jesus, this is telling us that we as his people are called upon to live in Christ because of what Christ has done for us, a life in and of repentance that roots in faith. The Christian enters into a new life that was not there before, and it is a life of repentance. Repentance proceeds from our union with Christ. And again, what is the motive for obedience and repentance for turning from evil and doing good? As we mentioned a moment ago, is it so we can engage in a transaction to get something from God? I heard uh, occasionally I will I will wade into uh, the zoo that is social uh, uh, YouTube podcasts and stuff like that, just to get a pulse on what people are saying. And usually I come out feeling like I need to take a shower. Um, <laughs> and when I was listening to a guy was talking about how, um, how he loves the Lord and he's always loved the Lord. Um, but he's, he said, he's realized he's got to stop um, spending the night over with his girlfriend's house and doing the things that married people do. But he says it's really hard, but he's doing it so he, but he says, I need to do it so I can get the blessing of God, so I can get the favor of God. Do you hear the transactional nature in that? That's all about what he can get out of it. No, for the Christian, it's this because God loves righteousness because he loves us. 
and because he preserves us. That should become sufficient for us. We don't have to have some sort of a carrot, on, proverbial carrot on a stick. Nor is it to earn favor. No, it's because God loves what is right and just. That fundamentally obedience, especially as we mature, becomes less and less about self-interest and more and more about simply because it's what's right. Remember, Christian ethics are not rooted in transactional nature. They're not rooted in consequences that the consequences of action determine whether it's right or wrong or the situation will change what's right or wrong. Nor are they rooted in uh, pragmatism that what's going to have the that that which works is true, but they're rooted in this. What's right is right, regardless of consequences. What's right is right. What's true is true. And because God preserves his saints, because he preserves us. Out of that should flow joy to serve him in newness of life. Remember, in the context of fretting and the evildoers and their prosperity and the apparent uh, trampling over all that is right and good and just, Spurgeon says this, we must not envy the doers of evil, but depart altogether from their spirit and example. He goes on to say, goes on to give another illustration that just as the wealthy man will go to great lengths to protect his hoard, so will our God not lose his people. God will not lose his people. And so we have every reason to do good and to turn from evil. For our good God has brought us to himself and has secured all that we need for us. And we are tied to another age which we, of, which we have a, of which we have a great taste of in this life but an age that ultimately still lies in the future for us. But we belong to that right now. And that is our loyalty and our citizenship. And he continues in verse 30 with a, with a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Here he says, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not sleep. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. And so here we see once again a contrast between that which is righteous and that which is good. And those who are righteous and those who are good or the one who is righteous and the rest of everyone else. And in verses 30 and 31, we see the difference in the fates, the difference in the perspective, the difference in the outcomes for the righteous and the wicked and the way that they live and in their lives. In verses 29 and 30, we see, I'm sorry, 30, we see the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. In verse 31, the law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Of course, assumed in that is the opposite for the for the wicked is that the mouth of the righteous utters something other than wisdom. Or the mouth of the wicked utters, some, utters something other than wisdom. And that the tongue does not speak justice. And that the law of God is not in his heart. And that his steps slip. <clears throat> 
but first of all, utters wisdom and speaks justice. The voice of the righteous is that of a soothing balm to the oppressed heart. That the righteous one, when he speaks, he speaks with wisdom and he speaks with and he speaks with care and he speaks with truth. And to the one who has need and who recognizes the need, it is of great comfort and it is of great encouragement and exhortation and call to move forward. And he does so because he fears God, that he understands who God is and what he's done for us. We think of the tongue, that is, our speech. James, very rightly, obviously rightly because it's the word of God, but very rightly goes and speaks about the power of the tongue and the inability to tame the tongue, the difficulty of it, that the tongue is one of the most powerful weapons out there. Words have started wars. Words have uh, brought down militaries after after all, I imagine in the Navy, you may have heard, those of you who have been in the Navy, loose lips sink ships. But words have done awful things. Spurgeon says, a man's tongue is no ill index of his character. The mouth betrays the heart. Good men, as a rule, speak that which is edifying, sound speech, religious conversion, consistent with the divine illumination which they have received. Human conversation is a far more consequence than some might imagine. We might say, well, there are only words. But words do great damage. I've heard some say, I don't know, I don't think in here, but I've heard some who have said things along these lines. That men need to get back into the habit of learning how to insult and insult one another and learn how to take insults. As that's part of the uh, coming of age and part of the path of the rite of passage for men. I thought, well, some things may say that, but I must ask, where is that in God's word? Where is the Christian authorized to do that? Nowhere is the Christian authorized to do that. Nowhere. Truly human conversation is a far more consequences than some might imagine. You may have heard, I remember growing up with it, and I actually think it was on, on some Saturday morning cartoons on occasion, but you may have heard, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And I add another line to that to say, and there has been no greater lie ever told. For words also betray what is going on. It betrays the heart. Of course, it betrays what's going going on inside. And this is true for the believer as well. For we still have lots of remaining sin. And our words reveal that. But listen to Matthew 12, 33 and 34. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and uh, and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we see that's rooted in this. The law of God in his heart is in his heart and his steps do not, spl- do not slip. He's guided by God's law, by God's eternal uh, 
standard, which is the, which is the solid foundation. This righteous one always speaks truth. This righteous one speaks what is good. This righteous one will deal uh, <clears throat> will deal um, very clearly with that which is evil, and yet still still speak gentleness, and yet not be quarrelsome. This righteous one. will also not take a not look at a bruised reed and say I'm just going to break this reed rather the bruised reed this righteous one will not break and so he stands truly upon a solid foundation in verse 32 we have the wicked one we see the wicked one is watching for the righteous and seeking to put him to death looking for ways to trap the righteous one you know the type. In fact, many of us have probably done so ourselves in different ways, probably not in such tremendous ways as that might be out there, but we may have been engaged in different ways of maybe having a rival in the workplace and finding a way to trip them up. But looking for ways to trap somebody. But the wicked, but the righteous one does the opposite. The righteous rather, rather than looking for ways to trap, simply looks for ways to do right. And walk and do do things in integrity. Paul's closing argument in his indictment against the human race and his indictment in the book of Romans on the human race begins in Romans chapter one, verse 18. From Romans one, verse 18, all the way through chapter three, verse 20. There is not an ounce of gospel or good news in that section of Scripture. There is no salvation in that section of Scripture. It is all law and it is all condemnation. It is all in the opening salvo of, his, of the indictment uh, against the human race. And in his closing argument of that indictment, it says in Romans chapter 3, Verses 10 through 20, as it is written, no one is righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not shown. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Notice this is a description of uh, uh, the M.O. of the entire human race. And it's an and it's largely quotations from different psalms and prophecies throughout the old and, and from the prophets throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And if we look at this and compare it with uh, what we see, uh, we see that truly. This is the way of the wicked and this is the way of the human race. These are things that still even remain in us. Even though we've been separated from sin and the sinful nature, there's lots of remaining sin in us. But in verse 33, we see this, these wonderful words in that God will not abandon his people. When he says the Lord will not abandon him to his power nor let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. 
The righteous has no need to fear the fear from wicked, though we might have more power. But there's this wonderful word. The Lord will not abandon him. God won't abandon him to the power of the wicked, and he won't let him be condemned on uh, the day of judgment on the last day. We see the look, we we see we can see Christ in this righteous one. And we see ourselves in this wicked one, in the in the in the wicked man. Jesus has the words of life, and he has the life of life. The Lord always spoke truth. The Lord, uh, as it was said of him, and as he said that uh, or as it's said of him in the Hebrew scriptures, a bruised reed he will not break. We see that he spoke truth. He dealt very bluntly with those who were uh, with those who are opposed to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, to those who were hypocrites. At the same time, he also dealt gently in his bluntness. He also dealt. Uh, he also ministered truth and ministered life. The law was fully in his heart and fulfilled the terms we failed to keep in the garden. Jesus was betrayed and put to death for and by our sin at the hands of those who sought him out. But that was not the last word. While on the trial, he was falsely, he was wrongly convicted. And rightly so, he was wrongly convicted. It was unjust. But in that great unjust act that happened, it was not an unfortunate martyrdom by which we can look back and say, say, remember Jesus, let's get them. But rather, it was his death for us upon the cross, which God had planned from before the foundations of the world for him to die as our substitute. But he rose from the dead and he was indeed not abandoned to the power of the wicked. And thus he is judged right and true and declared to be the son of God. Remember what we read in Romans, what I mentioned earlier about Romans 1, verse 18 through 320. But there being no gospel there. Let's look at Romans 2, 6 through 13. He will render eat to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life, but to those for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Remember, this is still part of the indictment. This is all law here. There is no gospel here. This is not a formula by which we can look at and say, okay, if I do enough good, God's going to judge me rightly. It's laying out the standard of the law of saying, he who does good, uh, saying that he who does good will indeed have eternal life. But what did he say in Romans 3? There's none who does good. There's no gospel there. There's there's no one in this room or is alive today or who has ever lived. Who meets the standard laid out in. uh, Who lays out the standard here, 
There's no one who has lived and died and is still dead or who will ever live and die who's met, who has met or will meet the terms of what's stated there. But Jesus did, and God rendered to Christ according to his works. Thus, he renders to us according to his works. Eternal life and blessing and goodness. And now for us from that, we see obedience that comes from faith. We have no business caving into the wiles of all that wars against us, including our own sin or making deals with the proverbial devil in order to preserve ourselves or to gain power. Rather, Christ is the victor, so we are. Thus we go in repentance. Thus we look at our words and we say we will speak truth and we will deal righteously with our words. We will be just in our words. And when we are not, we will turn in repentance to our God, trusting in our Lord Jesus Christ, thanking him for his forgiveness, looking for him to amend our hearts and ways. That we will let the law of God, which is our guide for life, dwell in our hearts. Because Christ is the victor, and so we are. So we go in repentance. And in verse 34, we have the hope of the righteous. We have this pivot point, so to speak, or fulcrum, in which you have these two sections before. You have verse 34, which is this fulcrum, and then you have the next two sections afterwards. He says, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Again, what is the exhortation here? Wait for the Lord. That's another way of saying of trusting in him, of resting in him, of receiving from him. And the language of waiting again has to do with us not taking things upon ourselves for ourselves and by ourselves, but rather trusting in the Lord our God. We don't like this word wait. Some of you are uh, too young to remember this. And some of us are probably too old to remember it, too. Uh, back in the 80s, uh, I say that tongue in cheek, don't worry. But back in the 80s, there was a, uh, a pizza chain uh, that ran a delivery thing that said 30 minutes or less or it's free. You may remember, but it turns out that they made too much of a promise and the one domino fell and all the others fell as well. So they stopped doing that because people, of course, would, would, would abuse the system. But also it reflects this. When we want something, we wanted it yesterday. But we're called upon to wait, wait upon the Lord, to trust in him. And in so doing, keeping his way. And that's the order. Wait for the Lord and keep his way. Walking in his way, walking in his life, walking according to his law. And the result is exaltation and his life and receiving of honor instead of shame. <clears throat> For he says, he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off and to hope in him and keep his way. And this is the way that the Christian life operates, waiting in him, hoping in him and keeping the way that is the way of faith from which flows repentance and to continue living a life of repentance. And this is our hope and our only hope 
not in princes or chariots or horses or the devices that we make, not in money or in influence, not in, according to worldly standards, winning. But rather, remembering that the gospel, as Mike Horton said in a whole chapter in A Place for Weakness, that, the, that we have in Christ Jesus good news for losers. Because that's really what we are in and of ourselves. And now he moves on from that remembering and kind of speaking of the same ideas, but from a different angle. In verses 35 through 8, we have the eternal fleetingness of ungodly gain. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless and behold the upright. For There is a future for the man of peace, but transgression shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. It seems that in history, wickedness seems to always have the upper hand. He speaks of uh, the wicked as... Uh, speaks of the wicked as spreading himself like a green laurel tree. Now, we really don't know what specific type of tree is spoken of here. Um, laurel tree is one understanding, but it's just simply a speaking of, in the Hebrew. It's more speaking of just a very what appears to be really healthy, green, uh, big tree with lots of branches and tendrils. It could be a laurel tree. In the year 2002, I had the privilege of uh, going uh, to Kolkata in India. No, it is Calcutta, maybe. And got to visit William Carey's church, even preached from his pulpit, uh, which was uh, uh, stood in really big shoes there. But part of that, we went and visited some of the Carey, uh, some of the William Carey uh, things there. And we visited, we not only visited his grave, we also visited the botanical gardens that he started there in and around Kolkata. Kolkata. And if if any of you have been to Maui, you might have seen uh, the great banyan tree that's in Maui, which isn't native to Maui. It actually came from India. They have these all over India, but there in Kolkata, you've got this in in the botanical gardens is a banyan tree, banyan tree. And if you go there and if you look at it, it looks like a forest because there's a central root and then branches grow out and those branches grow their own trunks, which then take roots into the ground. And it looks like a giant forest, but it's all one tree. And if you remind me, I have a picture of you if you ever want to see it, remind me and uh, we can I can show it to you. But that seems to be the picture that is being painted is that evil seems to spread its tendrils everywhere and among all classes and stations in life. And yet it still finds its way into our own minds and our own hearts. But the gain of wickedness, the gain of evil is fleeting. That tree that spread its roots and branches everywhere will be gone in a flash. Consider some sort of a massive wildfire that that were that may that were to happen there. That tree could be gone in a matter of days. And so it is 
with wickedness. And we might say, but it's been a really long time. I mean, it's been thousands, it's been several thousand years. But we look at time, we look at time in terms of our own little short amount of time here. You know, anywhere from however long we might live. It's actually tiny speck in light of eternity. In fact, it's not even a speck in light of eternity. And so in it from any, that we need to look at this from an eternal perspective. It's to the point that while the legacy may have lasting gain in this life, it will be gone for eternity. But the righteous one has a gain that far surpasses the temporal fleeting gain of wickedness. While the transgressors shall be altogether destroyed and the future shall be cut off. Here we see the salvation of the Lord. Uh, the, <clears throat> we see that <clears throat> the opposite is that the people of God uh, shall continue. Mark the blameless and behold the upright. For there is a future for the man of peace. There is a future. The man of peace. This is one who seeks peace and not destruction. Is this not our Christ who sought out peace for us? In him we become people of peace. Did we not learn in Hebrews? Pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Recognizing that our righteousness is as filthy rags that don't stand scrutiny. And so we always look to the righteousness of Christ, even in our own repentance, seeking the holiness which is already ours. And so... Recognizing that in him there is a future and we have every reason to be conform- to seek conformity to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in, in closing words that he has in verses 39 and 40, and by closing words, I mean the text closing words. I'll have closing words in a little bit. We see... The salvation of the, of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The salvation of the righteous is indeed from the Lord. That is, he is the stronghold of his people. He, that is, is unshakable when all things seem slippery and breaking. And where is the salvation of the righteous comes from? It comes from the one who is the Lord, the Lord, our God. The book of Revelation says salvation belongs to our God. We see throughout the Psalms, he is our salvation. He is our strength. He is our stronghold in the time of trouble. The portrait of a stronghold. Consider in a a high wind storm. When everything seems to be whipping around, you find the one thing that you can hold on to that's not whipping around. He is the unshakable one when all things seem slippery and breaking. The Lord helps and delivers the righteous. Verse 40, helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. On what basis does he do this? The way of the salvation of the righteous is being from the Lord. That is, they take refuge in him. Their claim to God's care isn't that they deserve it, but that they trust in the Lord God because Christ is the righteousness of his people. 
Their claim is the fact that God is their refuge. And so we keep taking refuge in him. We keep seeking to honor him because he preserves us. Spurgeon says of this verse, faith shall ensure the safety of the elect. It is the mark of the sheep by which they shall be separated from the goats. Not their merit, but their believing shall distinguish them. Who would not try the walk of faith? Happy are they who can sing themselves out of ill frames into gracious conditions. So, beloved in Christ, people of God, indeed, truly, in closing, we have no reason to fret because of evil and evildoers all around the world. We have no reason to fret even when we find ourselves aware of our own sinfulness and the evil that still remains in us. Rather, we turn to Christ, we take refuge in him who is the righteous one. And we seek to live in repentance. We seek to live according to that Jerusalem to which we truly belong. One of the worst things that we can do is when we see evildoers and we see them seeming to win is to say, well, it's working for them. So I guess we can do we can take their example and uh, Turn away from some of the good things we have because they don't work and to the things they're doing that are working. And sure, it might work for, un, for ungodly worldly gain, but does it work? But, but how does God define what works? He defines it according to doing that which is right, that which is true. And those are absolute standards that don't change. With times, they don't change with consequences. It is always right or it is always good. And that is bound up and tied to our relationship to Christ Jesus. So people of God, let us not fret because of evildoers or be envious of them, but rather let us, because of our Lord Christ, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you. and Blessed be your name. For we, are, we have our eternal hope and life in you. Go before us and with us and in us. Would you lead us in your way and in your hope? Help us to turn from fretting. Help us, O Father, to turn from evil to do good, knowing that in Christ you preserve us and you love us, knowing that you love that which is good and right. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.